Hey folks, welcome to this podcast. What's this podcast called, Chris? This is the Unsung Podcast, hosted by your host, Mark Fraser. Who are you? Who are you? (laughs) (laughs) I'm David John Weaver. He's David John Weaver. And you are listening to Scotland's premier music podcast. <laughs> Is that by default? By default, yeah. <laughs> Scotland's biggest town. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, it's just the two of us this week because we've got no friends left. No, it's the two of us this week because we're doing a special undertaking. Mm-hmm, we sure are. Um, so, before we explain why we're doing this, it all relates to Patreon, right? I mean, that's that's the reason. Money. Everything comes, Everything down, to comes money. down to money. Come yeah. on, let's be honest. Um, and we recently had our, our new best friend Alex on from every album ever last week and, and he was talking about how he just asked people for money so we're going to do that give us money how deep was that guy's voice by the way <laughs> so deep oh my god okay everybody give us some money <laughs> <laughs> if you don't give us some money Chris is going to come your house and do that oh, right I, in your I ear felt, there's nothing wrong with being effeminate but I felt so effeminate during that podcast <laughs> my wee squeaky voice <laughs> next to Alex fucking like nine foot tall striding giant powering through fields and over buildings Exactly Yeah Much like I imagine Colin Stetson would We'll come to that In a wee second <laughs> um, So We haven't had any new subscribers To our uh, record club This month What uh, is that so about? Far. We've had people sign up You know how fucking good This record club is Yeah it's really good The folk that are on it Are loving it They are loving it They yeah. are loving it mm-hmm. I mean that's not to say You can't sign up Without being part of the record club You can It's only £4 a month Or whatever Or whatever £4 is In your local currency um, But if you want to kill shit The real kill shit Sign up to the record club. Oh man, record club's badass. I mean, the normal tier, the basic tier, the four quid or equivalent is nice. You get all the bonus episodes, which are class. You get membership of the AAA Unsung Group, Mm -hmm. whereby you can interact with us and influence our decisions on episodes Mm -hmm. and basically have a go at us, which seems to be one of the (laughs) chief uses. Uh, And yeah... That's fine, that's fine, but the record club, the two tiers, the digital one and the analogue one, digital one, you not only subsidise the podcast, but you get sent a curated, chosen, selected album, uh, customised to your own tastes to some extent, every month, uh, and that money goes to help actual underground musicians and unsigned musicians. We're buying in bulk from them and sending it to you, so everybody's winning. We're getting funded, you're getting awesome music, and they're getting some sort of help to keep creating or some sort of reward for yeah. the music they have created and we do throw in the odd little bonus item mm-hmm. uh, but you won't know that unless you sign up and if you do the analogue one you're a total baller then you can come in and out as often as you please but you'll get actual vinyl sent to your house as well as the digital albums as well as all the bonus episodes it's really good and it's also paying back to your community and our wider community. It's the best model we could think of to benefit as many people at the one time as possible. Mm-hmm. So get part of it, you know. Don't stand on the sidelines. Get involved. Exactly. We're trying to we're trying to help the underground here. Yeah, so you can do that at patreon.com for slash unsungpod. Now, somebody who has been a very, very loyal Patreon subscriber and is now part of the Analog Record Club because he is mm-hmm. that kind of guy mm-hmm. is Mr. Corey Robinson. Hi, Corey. How you doing? We should we should emphasize the score. Corey Robinson. Corey Robinson. You've got to roll those R's. North America. Um, but Somewhere he's, in he's North America, there's a man <laughs> getting complimentary vinyls. <laughs> he is. And Curated for him. <laughs> and he's fucking loving them. It would appear, um, as he has said to us. 
but a long time ago, uh, and oh, ever so long, uh, and a Patreon subscription model far, far away. If you if you were stupid enough to give us a lot of money every month, we would uh, eventually, eventually do an album of your choosing. <laughs> um, and this is us doing that for him. We said a couple of months ago we were f- sort of fulfilling our outstanding obligations, mm-hmm. and this is one of the final outstanding obligations. Is Corey maybe the last? He is The last of the old regime mm. Well there are some people on the old tiers They haven't changed over yet um, They should do that because if they don't we're going to have to delete them Yeah <laughs> So please do that Yeah but well, that can't just go on indefinitely So if you're sitting on an old funding tier we really appreciate it But you do need to just take like one minute to swap over a tier Otherwise I think Patreon at some point just vetoes it doesn't it Yeah uh-huh. Yeah. We can't switch you, you've got to do it yourself So anyway yeah, Corey reached a certain threshold Whereby it became sort of impossible for us to ignore the fact that it was only fair for Corey to be able to suggest a record. And we were initially a tiny bit hesitant. What was the first record Corey suggested? It was uh, it was called Ethiopics and it was... Uh, oh, it was one that required so much research that we kind of shot out of it, I'll be yeah. honest with you. We had to get, we'd have to get, we'd have to get a dedicated resource and <laughs> yeah. talk about this. It album. was one of those ones that you can't just have three white guys <laughs> muttering away about music that they don't get from the northeast African coast. Um, so... Corey, I think, realised that, but didn't <laughs> exactly say it outright. It was like, how about an easier option, guys? How about I pick a, a white alternative jazz figure? Um, and we were like, thanks for letting us off the hook there, Corey. But it uh, didn't really. <laughs> you know, it didn't get much easier because Corey picked a fella called Colin Stetson and uh, an album called New History Warfare Volume 2 Judges. Judges. Yeah, we'll get into what he is. Yeah, this is this is an esoteric <laughs> ride we're going on, um, oh, yeah. uh-huh. and we're actually we put it off and we put it off, not out of badness, but because, well, we'll explain why we put it off. Uh-huh. We'll come back to that. What we'll do is a little bit of background mm-hmm. until we get there. So, who's Colin Stetson? You may actually have heard that name because Colin Stetson has his finger in many pies. Uh-huh. This record in particular came out in 2011 on Constellation Records, so if you're a fan of Godspeed You Black Emperor and their ilk, then that might also be another reason that you know Colin Stetson. He was born in Ann Arbor in Michigan. Mm-hmm. Uh, he spent a decade uh, in San Francisco and Brooklyn and is now based in Montreal, I think, yep. since about 2007. He met his wife, Sarah Neufield. Neufield? Neufield? Neufield. Neufield. While performing alongside her project, Bell Orchestra. He is a saxophonist primarily, mm-hmm. uh, but so much more. Uh, he started sax lessons, started taking sax lessons. I wish I could have started sax <laughs> lessons at 15. Uh, I actually started sax lessons, well, it's probably far too old to, oh. to admit it. <laughs> I, was, I was 14. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> I hope the police don't listen to this. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, Colin Stetson started sax lessons at age 15, 1990. There's a, a good quote from the, the magazine Noisy, or the webzine Noisy. Uh, Stetson devoured the classical sax repertoire when he started taking lessons at 15, and he arrived at the University of Michigan with a full scholarship as a classical sax player in the studio of legendary classical saxophonist Sinta. Do you know much about Sinta? Nope. Neither do I. 
Somebody probably does. Cool. <laughs> they should start a podcast. Yeah, just start a podcast. <laughs> uh, he was both the best and worst student a teacher could have, with an unmatched work ethic, focus and ambition, accompanied by a stubborn attitude that challenged every aspect of what he was being taught. So immediately you hear Colin Stetson's work, you'll be thinking, oh, he plays saxophone, but he's not the topless guy from Lost Boys. <laughs> <laughs> he's very close to it, though. <laughs> yeah, he's in good shape. He's in great shape. <laughs> he is in good shape. He primarily champions the bass sax, mm-hmm. uh, which is an instrument that lives in the fringes of brass sections uh, and rarely features in things like school bands. It's four feet high and the lung capacity required for it is huge. The finger spread on the instrument is nearly twice a regular baritone sax. And so logistically, it's a really challenging thing to, to choose to play. Stetson also performs regularly on your kind of more typical alto saxophone and also on clarinet. As Mark says, guy keeps himself in good shape. He has to really to do this. Uh, physically, a bit of a warrior. Um, during his high school years in Michigan, he was a three-way starter on the football team, competed in multiple, multiple events in the track team, wrestled in the 152 weight division, which I'm guessing is, must be a Greco-Roman thing as opposed to WWE. <laughs> can, can you imagine getting... It's a Rey Mysterio. <laughs> can you imagine getting up you're doing it wrestling after the guy that plays saxophone? <laughs> um, I mean, the guy's dedication to these things is insane when you, you, you read about his warm-up procedure before playing concerts and it talks about when he was doing his wrestling he'd do things like lose eight pounds of water weight before a weigh-in by running with just layers and layers and layers of clothes on and you know dropping weight is a big thing yeah. for mm-hmm. people that do any kind of mm-hmm. fighting uh, he's kind of carried that sort of discipline into playing saxophone he says that if he takes a break from playing for more than even just a few days, he physically loses the capacity and coordination to perform certain songs in his repertoire. Um, things like the, the breathing and the finger movements are very demanding and need to be maintained. Uh, the finger work is harder than the breathing, according to Colin Stetson, and uh, that sort of playing requires extensive tendon stretching to avoid seizing up on stage. Fucking I mean, yeah. he's really into uh, yoga and mm-hmm. things like that as well. You can tell he's like a clean living kind of guy yeah. takes really good care of himself well he's his circular breathing doesn't he um, That's which is quite a demanding technique in and of itself a lot, of, a lot of horn players use it but it's pretty evident when you hear his music that you can you can hear him employing it just to get those long drones, which are almost superhuman when you hear them. Yeah, and it's like it's it's essential for the fluidity of mm-hmm. performance. I mean, the the way he plays, the fact that you don't get big gasping breath breaks in between that's that's down to that. Do you know who else does circular breathing? No, Kenny G. Kenny. Oh. Kenny G, 75 million records that guy sold, <laughs> 75 million, one of the world's leading instrumental musicians uh, in sales and the world record holder for the longest note, 45 minutes 47 seconds, Wow! circular breathing on a, I think on an alto sax, now to do circular breathing on a bass sax it takes a much greater capacity, mm. so to be honest if you can do it on a bass sax you can probably do it for quite a while on an alto sax, um, Another fact about Kenny G, he's quite big in China. He's got a song <laughs> called Going Home, and it's the song that, it's a bit like the song Closing Time. Remember that one? Mm-hmm. That in China, in malls and restaurants <laughs> and stuff, they play the Kenny G song Going Home to, to tell you that that's it, guys. Get the fuck out. Yeah.
um, what's, what's that phrase? Don't care where you go, but you can't sleep here. Yeah, like that. pretty much. Yeah. Another thing that's worth knowing about Colin Stetson is his parts on his albums are recorded in one take. Probably not on. There's the, probably an asterisk yeah. to that. There are a couple of overdubs in this album, but mm-hmm. the main body of the tracks are, are recorded predominantly live. Mm-hmm. And when you listen to the records, it's impressive. Uh, but I think knowing that really ramps up how remarkable it is because you could you could sort of get to it if you had enough time and energy. Mm-hmm piece by piece setting up loops for example if you're using like a looping pedal or a synth or whatever but when you know that it's a guy standing in a room with an instrument doing these bizarre things it's 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 pretty astonishing um there's some uh, there's some good quotes about him again from noisy uh, after he left university in the 20 years since stetson has developed an audacious new method for playing the saxophone transforming it from an instrument that plays one part in so- in a song to an instrument that plays every part mm-hmm. in a song or almost every part as we say um and also ian Ilavsky, I think his name is, is a co-founder of Constellation Records, says, uh, I was mesmerised by the music, as was everybody in the audience. He's talking about a performance that he witnessed. The circular breathing and the physicality of it all blows people away. They don't realise that's even physically possible. Mm. The guy's a beast. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if a player. Even some of your your greatest jazz players, your John Coltrane's, your Miles Davies, I mean, they were superhuman in their own way, but this guy, from a purely physical perspective... I can't imagine there's many people that are as dedicated and as, I guess, poised as him. Mm-hmm. No, it takes real application. I'm going to be a pedantic fuck and say, you said Miles Davies, mm-hmm. like Alan Davies? Yeah, sorry, Miles, Miles Mi- Davies. Yeah. <laughs> Miles Davies is uh, his, his cousin for Because look, man, the, the fact <laughs> is you said it, but I'll take it in the neck with like angry messages from friends that listen to the show going, how did you let him off with that? <laughs> right. So there you go, right? I pulled him up this time. Stop messaging me. Delete my number. Um, okay, so we mentioned this earlier on, and I think it's a good juncture uh, at which to address it. Mark, why did we put this off so fucking long? It's you need to be in a certain frame of mind to listen to this kind of music. <laughs> um, well, I'm not. I don't mean. To, I don't mean that for that to sound like I'm kind of slagging it. I'm, disparaging. I'm, I'm not yeah, disparaging yeah. at all. Uh, we tried it. We actually tried, we we scheduled this episode and yeah, we tried to do it weeks ago, and we just felt like nah, <laughs> it just wasn't there yet. It yeah. was, you, know, you have to be to do these shows. You don't always know the music. In fact, quite often you don't, and you have to gain a certain amount of familiarity with it, and not just superficially. Because then, what's the point in doing the show? You're just it's just bullshit. You know, you want to actually try and engage with it, and certain music is easier than other music to engage with. Mm-hmm. This is not that certain music. Yeah. Um, and this kind of brought up an interesting issue for Mark and myself when we were talking about this beforehand, just swapping sort of angles and how are we going to approach this. Mood music. And I don't mean mood music in the sort of like, uh, you know, incidental music in, in TV shows, although this is quite a bit of that as well. There's but, a reason he's done so many film scores. Yeah, yeah. But music that is very, very tied to the, the emotions of the listener, mm-hmm. uh, whether from the perspective of influencing them or whether being reliant on them. And I would suggest that for, for from our perspective, for our purposes, to do the Colin Stetson episode and to do it properly, we had to find at least a few occasions where we were in an emotional state that was receptive to what we were listening to. Because as you'll hear from the stuff that we're going to insert into the episode, it's not actually that easy. Mm-hmm. Um, this is very dense, very dark, very slow and subtle, uh, quite odd 
at times, um, challenging, doesn't conform to a lot of kind of typical song structures. It's not easy to just jump into something like that when, you know, you've maybe been at work all day and you're driving home. This isn't like when Mark was like, let's do AFI and you slam it on the, in the car. Mm-hmm. You know, this is not that. This is not, oh, I'm going out running. I'll stick on some Colin yeah. Stetson. Fucking hell, imagine that. Mm-hmm. Um, you really need to find the opportunities within your daily life to, to, to listen to this, but to listen to it properly. And that hasn't actually been that simple. Mm. But that's an interesting idea because what I realised was there's not just like one kind of that. It's not like the only kind of mood music is dark and heavy and slow. For me, there's a whole pantheon of uh, styles. And I don't even know styles, like just categories of bands as well and artists that I need to be in a certain mindset for them. Mm. And some of those have actually evolved over time and some of them have just always been for me. So I thought we'd maybe like dip into that just very slightly. Um, I do think that when you try and play music of that sort and you're not ready for it, it actually makes you slightly hate it. Mm. You know, if you are forcing yourself into something, it's just, you know, for example, if you're at the wrong gig, you, you can be at a gig and know that the band is good, but you are just so not in the frame of mind for that. Especially if you go to something that's very arty and a bit pretentious and stuff, and you're just mm. like, I am not on this page tonight. And this is just annoying as shit. Um, I think that's an interesting point in general, right? Because I think a lot of people... They, they decide they don't like a band or, or some music, but they don't never they never take that into consideration. How many how many of your friends are like that? You know, how many times have you done that? Oh yeah, multiple. having to step back is something you shouldn't have to do it. You sh- I mean, unless you're doing something like this, you really shouldn't have to do it because I think a lot of music for a lot of people is what immediately resonates with you, like mm-hmm. straight away, right? Which is why this stuff is esoteric and difficult because it requires dedication of of a kind. What we do in this podcast is is review music, essentially, right? Reviewing music is not an objective thing. It's a subjective thing. Mm -hmm. But sometimes you need to try and move back and and be objective. And, yeah, I mean, there are weeks when... Fuck, so many times I listened to fucking ELO last week. I was like, I can't be asked for this, but it was never a challenge. This this is like a different, completely different kettle of fish. You know, you you mentioned essentially being reviewers and I I, I did work reviewing music for a long time and I was very mindful, we've spoken about this on the episodes, about music journalism, the pitchfork, mixtapes, that in the long run you want to kind of be able to stand by your work. Mm. Because I've I've also done reviews where I've dismissed things and then years later I'm like, I was a little douchebag that night. Mm. And I can tell I just wasn't in the mood for it. But I, I used that to sort of deride the art. And I think, you know, when people like Henry Rollins are crit- critical of journalists, that's the point they're making. You're like writing off somebody's hard work because you just didn't happen to be in the right frame mm. of mind. Mm. You do have an obligation to some extent to try at it. Some journalists obviously don't do that. But you want to be able to stick by it in the long term. So what, especially with those reviews, tasks it could be quite draining because you're like I really want to give this a fair hearing but this is making it hard for me mm-hmm. and that you also enter a cycle of resentment the more you have to listen to something the more you can grow to resent it if it's really exhausting mm. you know if it's really tiring you out I think there's other circumstances as well if the music's very harsh and you're very happy that's that's a that's a very obvious example of when you're just like no not this I mean being in tour vans and it's a beautiful sunny day and you've got the windows down and everybody's buzzing and you've just stopped and picked up donuts or something and mm-hmm. you're going down the highway and then somebody puts on like 
Slayer. Slayer. Not even yeah, but even worse than Slayer, you know, like something drony and doomy and you're like, How can you not read the room? Yeah. Like, how could you do this mm-hmm. at this moment? It's really annoying. Um you've got things on the opposite end of the spectrum, I guess. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, when something's really twee or inane, it might be great music, but it gets you in the wrong moment and you just wanna fucking break something over someone's head, you know, mm-hmm. it's just horrendous. Because music's pitched at an emotion. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, but some of it's very specific. So I would, I would. Here's a, here's a couple of examples that I think. Right. So I really like Chelsea Wolfe. I really like Sharon Van Etten. quite like Emma Ruth Rundle on paper right those three women are very talented they make fantastic music but it's very self-indulgent in an emotional sense and I need to be in a a certain state of mind to enjoy it because if I just stick that on it's totally OTT Mm -hmm. you know it's very mopey and at times it's fantastic Mm -hmm. but I can't just slam that on to any mood it just doesn't fit at all Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah gothy stuff I think is, is quite like that mm. Other stuff that's maybe not as gothy But it's got a kind of weepy self-indulgence Or sentimentality I think even stuff like Elliot Smith I don't have you with me But I keep a good attitude Do you miss me? Mm-hmm. Which is quite, you know, emotionally bare But actually has almost become slightly childish in hindsight you know, I think a lot of the emo stuff I liked, whilst it's emotionally bare at certain ages, you get older, it's a bit of an eye roll. Mm. And yeah, I still enjoy it, but I have to be in a certain mood. Yeah. A mood where I don't take it too seriously or a mood where I'm feeling really sorry for myself and mm-hmm. suddenly it feels like the most profound message in, in the entire universe, you know. Those kind of acts, I think, are really prone to that with me because I just can't be fucked with them if I'm not feeling that self-indulgence. Mm-hmm. I mean... I get, I've got the reputation of being the pop punk guy in this podcast, and it's one oh, fuck man. How do you find that, man? <laughs> exactly, that's what I was going to say. Like the amount of punk records that we've done is actually quite small in this podcast because I don't listen to it all the fucking time. And having DJ, having having to regularly DJ a pop punk night is also very difficult because there's so much, you just need to be in the right mood for it, and sometimes you're just not. But if it's a job, you need to do it. And sometimes a, this podcast is often like like a job, one that you, one that we really enjoy. Um, and if you want to. Go to patreon.com for slash unsung pod enjoy it <laughs> even more turn into a job <laughs> <laughs> but yeah I mean I think for me when the first thing about talking about him we're talking about mood apart from some specific albums which I'll talk about in a sec um, hip hop is a big one for me mm-hmm. you know um, I, I adore hip hop probably more than I adore pop but punk music in general I think because it, it feels more universal to me emotionally because it's got a lot it's got a, it runs a much wider like sort of Gamut of emotions is Gamut Gamut of emotions yeah. yeah But sometimes I just don't want to be Bombarded by words Yeah you, Absolutely you, yeah. Know, you know And I think that's fine Right Yeah totally That's a, that's, that's a human thing I'm just I'm not up for this today guys mm-hmm. Sorry I mean I'm On the noise spectrum as well Like things like Arabon Radar Who are kind of like Cacophonous 3-1-G Shreddy Nasty Lo-fi Alternative stuff
Otecher, mm-hmm. the, 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 the electronic group, Black Dice, the kind of noise experimental group. harsh as fuck I think they are very impressive propositions but it's actually quite a narrow number of occasions when I want to hear any of that Mm -hmm. as much as I conceptually love it I'm so glad it's there it's really not something that gets heavy rotation. Yeah, it's, I think it's quite interesting that, that this conversation also has another side of it, which is that when a band that, like this that you don't really spend, that you like, you really like, but you can't spend a lot of time with for whatever reason, suddenly play a gig and you couldn't go see it, and somehow you can adjust your emotions just for that one hour, hour and a half experience. Sometimes though, but I mean, I, I do remember on certain occasions going to shows and just actually getting there and being in the totally wrong frame of mind for mm-hmm. it and thinking, I should have enjoyed that more than I did Just mm. got me in the wrong day You know what it's like Yeah Another thing That I actually admire A lot of metalheads For, for like wanting to <laughs> Just be immersed in that All the time Never you know? leaving the mind space Yeah I mean yeah. I think the world's a fucking horrible place Right it's, I think it is <laughs> um, But Man I fucking love Death Heaven I love At The Gates Two different kinds of metal bands I also really like Slayer. Doing the Slayer research was hard. It was. It was hard. As much as I really enjoy that yeah. band, and as much as we stand by what we said about that band, that we all really liked it, and we all had a lot of time for particularly that record, but those re- the records that were in about that time as well for the band, it's punishing, right? Because you have to be in, a, like you said, you've got to be in a certain headspace to appreciate the full visceral intensity of that kind of music. And I think all, all, there's so many different kinds of metal, but it, it is all... It all kind of channels the same or similar emotions. And this is just reminding me of something which is now popping right in my head. I went to see the band Crusades, who we know uh, members of quite well. And I was there with a friend who's not really an, who is not really a musical person. And he was he, he, he said something to me back then which I found really weird, but I now completely understand in a in a new way. <laughs> uh, he was like, like these guys are just angry all the time. Like, how how can you sit and listen to this all the time and watch this happen? I didn't come here to hear this, even though you said they were good. So I'm like, it's hard for me to relate to it. And at the time, I was like, no, oh, man, you don't get it. But having to do this intellectual exercise <laughs> has made me give me a, give me a new pre- it does appreciation force you, for that. Yeah, it does force you to empathise and recognise the fact that people are not in the same emotional state as you all the time. Mm-hmm. It may not be superficially apparent. They may not be in floods of tears or in like fits of laughter, but they also might be in quite a significantly different emotional state underneath that's mm-hmm. just incompatible with, with what your two experiences. Uh, you mentioned that the gates, and I suppose crusades and stuff like that, uh, that, that brings to mind bands like Meshuggah mm-hmm. or Melt Banana, who are incredibly impressive bands and again, love the fact that they're there, but I find them exhausting mm-hmm. to listen to. I need to have a lot of energy to listen to those bands, um, or indeed, I think most math rock things like that. It, it, it really grinds you down. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was talking as well about things you put on in a van at the wrong time on a sunny day, I love neurosis. I love neurosis. Mm-hmm. But sometimes you're like, oh, for fuck's sake, <laughs> Steve, lads, come on, <laughs> yeah. crack a smile. He's a second. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, just give a wee break. And again, on the flip of that, one that occurs to me is John Hopkins, okay? 
because John Hopkins is kind of he's very accessible at Electronica he's doing really well for himself without being overtly mainstream you know he's not going to be in a lot of like you know teen dramas Mm -hmm. but um I find John Hopkins sometimes a bit like eating too many biscuits. Like there's something just a bit too sweet about it. It's a little bit too easy. Mm-hmm. And I like that sort of food. We just, it needs to be a little bit more tart, a little bit more acidic. It needs, mm-hmm. it needs something, you know, like, like I think that's why I've, I, I far prefer the likes of Blank Mass and um, something like that. That's just got a little bit of harshness to mm-hmm. it because too much is something that's just a bit too easy. It gets a bit in a, in a certain emotional state. You're just like, oh, there's no challenge here. Mm-hmm. This is just washing over me. Um, so yeah, I think I, I think we really underestimate how difficult it can be. We're used to it now after years of doing this, but how difficult it can be because I used to really struggle when I was doing reviews. Mm-hmm. That that was tough. Um, off the top of your head, are there any bands that you never struggle to get into? Um. So I would say Motown or Sam Cooke, stuff like that, I can more or less listen to that at any time. I don't... You know, stuff like... I would have said Ryan Adams before, but I can't really... I don't really listen to him anymore because of, because of that shit. Um, Chuck Reagan, you know, anything that's acoustic and kind of chill, I, I can always find a mood for that, usually, as my kind of go-to place. I, I was actually had a thing earlier on at the start of this year where I was just not connecting with any any punk music at all and that was usually my go-to right mm-hmm. even though I don't listen to it all the time if I'm if I just want to listen to something and I want to have a sing along that'd be my usual go-to and it just wasn't connecting with me and it's the first time that's happened in years but usually if I'm if I'm struggling for something I will either go back to something like that or I'll just sometimes I'll just want to listen to meatloaf or just something that's just <laughs> I don't even think about it Wayne's screaming pretty much I you know <laughs> Or uh, I know I don't like them, but Led Zeppelin, like classic, classic I rock do stuff. Not like right? them, you know, because I know it's not. I know, you know it so well, and it's not a challenge, and it can yeah, just kind of wash over you. That's the familiarity yeah, thing. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, that actually, that's probably the last major note I have on this subject before we go back into Colin's stuff. But talking about things that you know well, sometimes that's obviously very comforting, and it can actually make something much more uh, acceptable, regardless of mood. However, I also emotionally get into a stage where I'm like far too familiar with things. It's a fine line for sure Yeah Mm -hmm. I mean I love Fugazi Mm -hmm. Spoiler You know If anybody Mm -hmm. hasn't Picked up on that They are just absolute fucking legends But I'll be honest I don't want to hear a lot of it mm-hmm. And it's partly because I listen to it so much And I want to, I want it to have some longevity I don't want to burn it out the way I burn out certain other bands, you know mm-hmm. um, So things like that uh, Things like LaRue, I guess mm-hmm. <laughs> An often laughed at person in this ABBA, mm-hmm. you know um, Things that have maybe burnt out a little bit By excessive good time playing but the thing that fucks me off the most and really jars with my mood is people that overplay 80s hits. Mm-hmm. Just people that think that because 80s hits, like you say, because familiarity tends to make it easier for you to enjoy it no matter what, you know, who doesn't like uh, Queen or Roxette or whatever? Yeah, fucking love them. Brilliant. Is it amazing music? Yes. Do I want to hear it at like 12 o'clock on a Tuesday? <laughs> it's no, keep it for the right time, mm-hmm. you know. 
emotionally I want to associate that music with a Friday night or a Saturday night or a van trip or a car trip. I want it, I want it to feel special, mm-hmm. you know, and the problem is you, people often devalue certain styles of music by slamming them into situations that are inappropriate. You're like, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. You're ruining this in my head. You're creating connections that it doesn't want. Mm-hmm. I don't want this fucking power ballad. I don't want Nelson to be associated with a quiet coffee at 11 o'clock on a Wednesday, yeah. you know. I want Nelson to be like the last tune before the lights go on in some stupid club mm-hmm. on a Saturday. And I, I, that really fucks me off as well because emotionally I find that really jarring yeah. in a completely different way from Colin Stetson, clearly. Mm-hmm. But talking of Colin Stetson. It's actually, there's probably a good segue here, right? There are people out there who have employed Colin to do certain jobs, which clearly... <laughs> Sounds very... Which, um, <laughs> it's somewhere between Mission Impossible <laughs> and uh, The Da Vinci Code. The da Vinci Code. Um, <laughs> People are clearly aware of what what his music can elicit emotionally in people because he's yes. done a hell of a lot of soundtrack work in the past, and he's done more he's done more soundtrack albums in the past like seven years, and he's, he's released records, yeah. solo records, and uh, that's impressive itself. And that's itself. actually what we said right back at the start of the show. It's like there's there's a two way street with that emotional thing. Sometimes to appreciate the music, you have to be in the correct emotional state, but. In the situation we call in Stetson, he also frequently helps dictate the emotional state. And combined with a th- something like a film, that's very, very effective. Mm-hmm. And part of that's possibly because if you know him, you've built up certain connections and you go into that zone where you're like, all right, okay, familiarity. But even for new audiences, I mean, I, I was hearing Colin Stetson before I knew who Colin Stetson was. And his, his soundtrack work is excellent. Mm-hmm. Really, really good. But let's, let's jump back in. And he's got a lot of records um, just to... Skim through some of that list. Uh, there's one called Tiny Beast from 2003, with an original group I think we called Transmission Trio. Mm-hmm. I'm not familiar with it. Um, soon after that, though, the same year he brought out Slow Descent. You've heard that, right? Yeah, so that's it's on his Bandcamp. His Bandcamp has not all of his soundtrack stuff on it, but all of his solo stuff is on there. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the collaborations he's done, which we'll cover in a sec. So Descent is very much a traditional... I was going to say traditional jazz album. He's not a traditional player. Uh, yeah, I doubt that. Um, <laughs> but it is very close to being traditionally jazz. It's it's the band. It's a full band, you know. Yeah. Um, I, I like guitar, drums, bass, trumpet, sax. And it, it, when I heard it, I, I heard it earlier on today because I, I didn't realise that he had another album because I was only just listening to what was on Spotify. And I was like, I'll go back and listen to that. And I was like, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> Which is not at all what I was expecting. There's still elements there. You know, he's, um, I think he plays some Rhodes piano on it as well as does um, some sax. But Boy, he owns a lot of singing bowls, by the way. You've seen the photos on his website? No. He's fucking spoiled for singing bowls. He could set up a Yeti. <laughs> <laughs> he should. Um, but he's, yeah, it's still got the same kind of elements of his sound that, the, the drones, you know, the, the, the sense, the, the sort of sense of longing and melancholy that pervades his entire body of yeah. work. Uh, 
it's, a, it's an interesting record for sure. It's, it was weird for me to hear him play with a full band because there's only another couple of instances in his catalogue where he does that. Mm-hmm. And one of the main instances is, a f- is like a full fucking band. Yeah. Um, it's strange because it's, it's just it's sort of not what Colin Stetson does, is it? It's like the whole, the whole parlour trick is that he does so much with one instrument mm-hmm. that he almost makes up for a band. He is percussion, he is drone, he is harmony, he's everything. So hear him combining with other musicians can be a little bit jarring. Yeah, some of the early stuff, I, I, I kind of found it a little bit. It wasn't to my tastes. Um, New History Warfare Volume 1 came out in 2007. I'm not mad on that. It's okay. It's very, this is going to sound strange, but you'll understand what I mean when I say it. It's very simplistic. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't have the percussive elements. It doesn't have the... I'm going to say loops, but we know they're not loops. But that that droney, the that you thing. know, yeah. the there's just a sense of intensity. It's still pretty intense, but he's he's just one man playing a saxophone in a room. You know, yeah, it does way more than that. Yeah, uh, there's some other things. The Righteous Wrath of an Honourable Man, seven inch from 2010. <laughs> New History Warfare Volume 2 Judges in 2011 that we're going to talk about in depth. Then you've got Those Who Didn't Run EP 2011 as well. New History Warfare Volume 3 To See More Light. That's a grandiose title. Yeah. What did you think of this one? I've, I don't have too much to say in it, but I listened to it walking home from the McCluskey gig with Rattler night. <laughs> walking through. Strange choice. Walking through, like, you know, town when it was a bit derelict and it was, it was made for a very unsettling experience. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> uh, I didn't spend a lot of time with this one, but I, I know exactly the effect you're talking about because mm. Glasgow has a very industrial and slightly rundown place, mm. along with its grey skies and its. Uh, inclement weather and mm-hmm. it's wind and yeah. you know pulling your collar up and mm-hmm. getting your head down and walking along to this stuff is very uh, effective yeah the halogen the halogen glow in the barren streets was just like and then I got on a bus <laughs> home through the south oh, side that was your first mistake um, in Glasgow. but yeah Justin's Vernon from Bonnet Bonnie Vera's on that record there's vocals on it Yeah, I've heard that one, um, and it was so obviously him. <laughs> yeah, there's a song called Brute, which it, the, the vocal on it is essentially like grunts and stuff. But there's, a, there's the centrepiece, I guess, for the album is To See More Light, which is 15 minutes long. Mm-hmm. And I just got in the house 
uh, all the lights are off. I'm just I'm pottering about my room. I've talking my headphones on because I'm like I want to see this to the end. So I'm just getting ready for bed and all that. And your then lights are still off. My lights were on, but they yeah. were quite low. And you look up and there's a guy in the corner. And he's been there for 15 minutes. He's on the ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> No, uh, there was. It was actually creepier than that. So there's like there was a huge fucking gutter. <laughs> was just all I could see was his white legs. That's savage t-shirt in the corner. There's this massive guttural scream, like almost like somebody's been murdered. Right. And it just comes. It just comes out of nowhere. Like over a Wilhelm scream. Literally, like a man who's been stabbed to death. Blood curdling. Blood curdling yeah. is, is is apt. Yeah. And that's exactly what. So I'm just like fucking. I think I'm bending down to take my socks off, and I'm like, "Fuck, what is that?" <laughs> and I turned round, and I was like, "Holy shit, man!" I actually scared. The, I was a bit drunk as well. Don't get me wrong, but I scared the fucking shit out of me, man. I can vouch for that. <laughs> and I was like, hmm, "Okay, this uh, this is going off now." I think that's a bit of trolling in his part as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Album, an interesting work, uh, Sorrow, a reimagining of, Gare- is it Goreski's yeah. Third Symphony from 2016? That's the one I was going to talk about because this is the only other time he's worked with a band. Mm-hmm. That, is an interesting, that is an interesting album, I think. I'm not familiar with Goreski's Third Symphony. I don't know I don't, anything about the context, really. I don't know either, but I was looking at some reviews, and apparently it's quite faithful. In terms of the arrangement, mm-hmm. uh, oh, sorry, the, the, the music, but the arrangement is obviously all him. Right, okay. Um, it goes to black metal at points. Oh, wow. It's got the guitar player for liturgy on it. Okay. Um, it's got. It's actually got quite an. It's actually got quite an impressive number of different players on it. Anyway, it's, there's, there's a lot of people on it. A lot. Of, lot of guests on it because it was recorded live full orchestra. Like basically a full band and mm-hmm. um, it goes post rocky at times like obviously he's playing the sax the whole time the first song is 28 minutes long and the second two are like 10 and 13 it's got opera opera vocals on it it's Truly epic, truly epic stuff. Um, the only downside for me is I think the mix is really bad. It's, it's oppressive. See, when it's loud, it's too, just too loud. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's as if 
whoever's turned the compressor on to make the, the quiet bits sound louder has not turned it off. <laughs> so it just sounds I mean, quite square. If it is as complex as you're saying, though, and it's been recorded live, I mean, that is going to be a nightmare of separation. As you were saying that, my eyes were watering, <laughs> thinking about the amount of bleed that would be going down different microphones. Mm. So really, they may, the engineers may have been quite limited in what they could actually control. Yeah. Um, I did listen to All This I Do For Glory a wee bit. Mm-hmm. It was decent, aye. It was good. Again, it's the kind of thing, It's not, you can't just like jump into it and then get a sense of it. You need to yeah. really spend a bit of time with these. Uh, his collaboration work is pretty interesting. Stones in 2012 with Mats Gustafsson. I found that album tough going. It, it's very much aimed at jazz heads. Uh, it's very uh, an esoteric listen. The, the, based on the title, Stones, the instrumentation does indeed summon the idea of rocks and stones, these big weighty notes tumbling around, colliding with each other. It's like a brass-off. It's it's very clunky and chunky and harsh and just musically doesn't... It has absolutely no emotional connection mm-hmm. within me. Never Were the Way She Was from 2015 with his wife, Sarah Neufeld. Uh, we're saying Neufeld, by the way. I'm, I apologise if that's not how you pronounce it. I actually think that's one of his best yeah, and most accessible works. I would agree. The, the, the collaboration stuff with his wife is fantastic. She plays violin. Mm-hmm. Um, whilst it's not always completely on target, at, at certain points that the interwoven, contrasting nature of those instruments produces some really beautiful and haunting bits of music. I would highly recommend checking that out in a bit more detail. I suspect the longer I spend listening to that, the more I like even some of the harder parts mm. in it. Um, there's a record called XI 2017 uh, alongside a bunch of other uh, performers, Greg Fox being one who I've put mm. on, Greg Fox the drummer. It is Shazad Ismaili, and Shazad, I think, produced the record that we're doing today. Oh, okay. And uh, Toby Summerfield. He did Radiate in 2015 with the Chemical Brothers, who I'm sure you've heard of. Uh, and The Long Road North in 2022, this year, with Cult of Luna. You listened to it? Oh, I've listened to the album. I couldn't, I couldn't tell you if I he's, remember him being on it. But. I think he's only on a couple of tracks on that, and his, his contribution's decent.
it doesn't fundamentally alter the nature of the whole album though mm-hmm. you know what I mean I, I mm-hmm. think I kind of hoped because I mean I'm really been impressed with some of his stuff and I could really see how that collaboration could work I would have liked it if it had been a, a 50-50 actually I could see that being tremendous because I, I think Cult of Lunar can be quite hit and miss as well as good as they can be they're, they're, they're prone to sometimes just repeating themselves mm-hmm. and going down dead ends I, I think I would love them to maybe revisit something with a much more even split Mm. Of 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 uh, control, or indeed for him to do something similar with the likes of neurosis, I think that'd be fantastic. The, uh, the, the collaborations thing it's probably worth mentioning at this point that you've, there's a fair chance you've heard them somewhere because because of the number of artists he's collaborated with. You know, uh, Tom Waits. Yeah, Blood Money, Alice, Andy's on that Orphans box set. Arcade Fire Neon Bible Suburbs and Reflector Yep The National Ugh. TV on the radio uh, TV on the radio is on Dear Science so I'm sure you, you know that one Bonnie Verry's on Bonnie Ver and 22 a million yeah that one um, I don't listen to that band Godspeed You Black Emperor um, LCD Sound System David Byrne David Gilmore even like I didn't know this but I'm a huge fan of Kevin Devine and he's worked with him he's playing one of his records he's worked with Lou Reed worked Lou with Sinead O'Connor yeah. mm-hmm. uh, he's on the Animal Collective album Painting With mm-hmm. uh, and as we said the, the Chemical Brothers and that's I mean that's barely scratching the surface Laurie Anderson as well who we'll talk about uh, yeah he, he gets around um, he as Mark mentioned especially recently has done an awful lot of soundtracking work so I think that started in, in Bits and Bobs on the likes of 12 Years a Slave he did Bits and Bobs on Rust and Bone The Rover he scored Red Dead Redemption 2 mm-hmm. but in terms of this embarking on full scores I think he's found a bit of a calling here because you know it's a niche sound that he's got even though he's actually at, I'll point it he's, he's actually Got a little bit more diverse than I maybe would have thought he could have. But um, Blue Caprice in 2013, which he did with Sarah Neufeld, is a film about the Washington sniper attacks. Okay. Again, you can imagine suitably dark, often really quite percussive, and the music really does embody a sort of troubled state of mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's maybe an oxymoron to embody a state <laughs> of mind. But um, yeah, really effective. Uh, I've not actually seen the film, but musically, it took me on some journeys. It's a, it's a really good soundtrack. I mean, it's not easy listening, let's be clear. <laughs> um, La Peur from 2015, I'm not familiar with, and Outlaws and Angels 2016, I'm not familiar with. Um, Let's get serious. 2018, he did the soundtrack to Hereditary. Mm -hmm. Which is a total watershed moment for the guy. 
pitch black score for a pitch black film the, this it makes a lot of use of volume dynamics not just the in- instrumentation and the performance but the actual physical volume the way it hits you sometimes and peaks out and really physically jars with you Um, I think it's interesting as well that that film I fucking love that film it's tremendous I don't want to fucking see it Okay, (laughs) Um, I've seen that film three times and every single time I've absolutely adored it Right, Mm. but it's a bit like we were discussing earlier on, it's a mood film and if you, you know, this was the issue, in fact, when a lot of people went to see it at the cinema. They went on a Friday night expecting, you know, Jeepers Creepers 2, and instead they got something very, very much not Jeepers Creepers 2. You know, it was really dark and intense, and it's it's esoteric, and even in its horror, um, and it, it really sums up that, that sort of, it's a film version of what we're talking about, where you have to be in the right frame of mind to really give it a fair hearing. Mm-hmm. I'm fucking sick of hearing from people who were like, well, I just wanted the fucking night out of the movies and had to watch all this fucking mad shit, and then this fucking body floating about, and that. you're like, well, you know, you didn't go at the right time. That's not the film's fault, you know? <laughs> yeah. um, I, I think his soundtrack to that is excellent. It, it's difficult to listen to on its own mm-hmm. in isolation, uh, but being familiar with the film, I can, you know, I've got a bit more of an appreciation for it. But if you're watching the film, spare a thought for how great a job he, he did mm-hmm. with that. Um, he's done, he did a film called The First, which I'm not familiar with. He did Colour Out of Space, the Nicolas Cage film, which is HP Lovecraft, HP Lovecraft yeah. which is a really visually striking film. Personally, this is not a film review site, right? But I don't think it's as good a film as people wanted it to be yeah, based on the, the stylistic quality of it. Yeah, yeah. Very stylish. Very stylish. Yeah. Mm. Beautiful to look at. Absolutely. and And the music's excellent. Mm. Really, really works. I just don't think the film itself holds up. Nick Cage's been quite understated for most of it, apart from the occasional when he slips, slips into being. Yeah, bad. I think um, <laughs> probably without any spoilers, there's a couple yeah. of moments where the mask slips. Yeah, um, a film called Barskins in 2020, Deliver Us in 2020, The War Show in 2020. So that's four fairly sizable soundtracks and films that he's done in in one year. And he's done more since. Yeah, and he's still going. Uh, one of them's actually going to make a, an appearance in my Nexus. He's mm-hmm. done a series. He's done a few series now. Yeah, he did. He did the Texas Chainsaw, Texas Chainsaw Mask. Yeah, the Netflix, new one, um, which I saw. Which is, it's okay. It's okay. I mean, the sounds the music's pretty decent, mm. but the film itself, I don't know if it yeah. justified the the revisit. Out of that list, I've only seen Hereditary and Colour Out of Space, and they're both uneasy films. Yeah, which totally is his mo, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean he's he's very well chosen for them, mm-hmm. and he does a good job of them. You know. Mm-hmm. Before we get into New History Warfare Volume Two, Judges, Judges. <laughs> um, Corey gave us a bit of a an explanation as to how he get into this record and how he kind of stumbled across it. So he heard it back when it came out in 2011. He was mostly listening to things like Bright Eyes, Bonnie Vera and the National, and he fucking came, hell, he came across. 
across this in a pitchfork, pitchfork end of year list, he had torrented it and it just kind of really blew him away. He said a lot of the stuff that he was listening to has kind of faded away since then from like his general listening, apart from this one album. Mm-hmm. Like he feels that it's a very menacing, very elemental record. That it feels like impending violence. He feels like it's a natural companion to Cormac McCarthy. I can see that. Um, yeah. Which, yeah. Uh, you've, uh, yeah, the road is, is the only book I've read by him, but I can totally see. It. I guess it would probably work in the film. I haven't seen that. Um, he sees it as being a major achievement on being virtuosic without being alienating, uh, and it has a lot of brute force. Using this huge instrument to create brutality and giving the music gravitas itself. Yeah, see that brute force? That's what I was saying about the hereditary soundtrack. I think he's actually taken that mm. and ramped it up even further. I do agree there's an element of that in this, but not to the same extent where he, in engineer's terms, he's got a ceiling. Mm. He's got a volume ceiling, and the record plays below that mm. for, for, for much of its runtime. Mm. And then every so often, it exploits this volume ceiling that you didn't even know was there to really physically assault. You yeah. with, with with where it can go. I've got some great similes here that I'm going to just say verbatim because they're pretty good. Um, most of the album sounds like a man a loincloth being beaten to death with a rock by flickering torch right in front of a cave painting. <laughs> it's a weird record because it's simultaneously sim- cinematic, distinctly postmodern, and also timeless. And when I say timeless, I mean like it's been sprung from a time before humans acquired spoken language. Um, uh, you know, it's interesting. This is timeless because. We'll segue smoothly into the the, uh, the album itself here. One of the things that I realised with this record was that I didn't know how long any of the songs were. Mm. If, if you just let it flow, obviously it can be difficult to discern whether you've just passed a transition or was that just an intro. But even knowing the distinct tracks after a while... I, without looking at the, the, the counter on it, I was like, is this a three-minute song or a six-minute song? I I don't actually know mm. what you know it, because the some of the stuff is so languid, some of it's so subtle, and then the other stuff that's more frantic, the kind of fluttery things that sound almost looped. Mm-hmm. How long does that go for? I mean, it's like constant flurry of notes, you mm. know, for minutes and minutes, and you're like, was that ten minutes? Was that yeah. you know five minutes? I think that timelessness is literally true when you're when you're trying to think about the record with, before you actually start looking at those, you know, the specific run times. Mm. And just a final piece that he says here, um, which relates to what we've just discussed, um, relative to the rest of his catalogue, this has stuck with me in a, in a way that his other stuff hasn't. I think that's because most of the songs on this record are more focused and whilst they're not exactly hooky or full of harmonies, they do largely stick to driving riffs and don't meander much. Nothing hooks them quite like this record when it comes to his mm. uh, Constance's work. I'm not entirely in agreement with him on that one, but let's let's uh, analyse that a little bit more. Um, first off, this got in the shortlist for the Polaris Music Prize in 2011. Seems to be common for him, actually. Uh, and it was beaten out by the suburbs by the Arcade Fire, which he also played on. <laughs> I wonder if he gets some royalties for that. <laughs> uh, it was, as I mentioned earlier on, it was produced by Shazad Ishmaili. It was mixed by Ego Ben Frost, who's also a very well-respected yeah. alternative musician, and it was engineered by Ephraim Minnick, who's the sort of the, the main guy, if you will. You know, he's not the main guy because Godspeed's a collective, but he's one of the main guys, and he's also a key member in Silver Mount Zion as well as a solo musician got 8.2 in Pitchfork I thought uh, Mark Richardson the reviewer's take was quite interesting he he cites the experience uh, of, of this album um, in relation to the feeling as though there is nothing new to be heard in music and then through this suddenly having that notion rubbished now I think some people 
who are more into avant-garde stuff will clearly sniff at that. I mean, we're talking about things that are extreme. You know, we've not even said Merzbo yet, but Merzbo's a bit of a, you know, it's a bit of an easy go-to for that kind of extreme sound thing. But, you know, for a lot of people, this isn't that extreme. But certainly for your average Pitchfork reviewer, this is a, a total paradigm shift, you know. And it's interesting that it can both do that, but keep them on side not just blow their minds and then because I mean for example Merzbo I don't want to fucking listen to that mm-hmm. I think it's fascinating that someone does it but right fine okay it exists that's all I need to know um, you mentioned that he does a lot of stuff live uh, this was mostly recorded in live single takes at Hotel to Tango that's the that's the studio in Canada that Godspeed use all the time um, the only overdubs are a French horn on track 4 and a whole host of vocals that were added it was recorded using 20 different microphones placed at various intervals around the room, some of them very close, some of them very far away, some of them kind of up high, some of them down low. And I guess if you're not familiar with recording, you really, you won't maybe appreciate what an interesting variety of qualities of tone that will give you. If you could isolate any one of those microphones, you would be hearing almost a completely different mm. experience. You know, especially from the close-up ones, the ones, I mean, he uses a microphone that is, it's called the dog collar mic. It's something that he kind of, I don't know if he patented it, but basically he had been, um, he'd been gaffer taping Mike's to his neck Yeah that's one of the things I was going to say With the microphone positions Like he was There's one on his On his throat Yeah so he'd been Gaffer taping up to his neck And then you know Apocryphally it was uh, What's his name Justin Vernon mm-hmm. From Arcade Fire Had suggested he tried using I think it's, it's the armband thing That they give you with iPods to, to When you were running mm-hmm. You know mm-hmm. This is back in 2010 And so he, he moved over to that And ended up with this thing Called the dog collar mic Which is against his throat That captures not only The sound of the instrument But literally Almost like a throat singing Deep quality I'm going to do it just now Against the microphone But mm-hmm. Which is you know, sounds daft on its own, but it's an interesting quality. And if you're doing percussive noises like that, then you're mixing it in with 19 other microphones. Mm-hmm. There's really interesting things that, that can come from that. Yeah, those mics hanging through the ceiling, those mics on the body of his of his saxophone. Those, those. I can't even imagine what, what some of the other places must have been. There's probably like one in the fucking under the floorboards because it sounds like there is at places. You know, it's not <laughs> unusual for for engineers to put microphones in the corridor outside the room. Yeah. You do get really interesting reverbs. See, when you've got that many microphones, you're not really necessarily relying on reverb units or plugins and things mm. like that because you've got so many options with that. I think there's obviously there's a thing called phasing. We're not going into a workshop on recording <laughs> here. Phasing the microphones can be really problematic, but if it's done properly, then it's incredibly effective. Steve Albini's famous for having very minimal miking on his drum kits. He uses good quality microphones, largely positioned above the drum kit, to just get a natural combined room sound, as opposed to most engineers now who will, if they're not sampling the kit or triggering the kit, will at least use close mics, almost contact mics, on a variety of of instruments uh, and parts of the kit. But yeah, so given that context, this album takes on a whole new significance, I think. Once you know that these are not just layers and layers of things that this guy's added at his leisure in his bedroom using a laptop, this is a performance, this is a a moment in time captured very, very well, um, but also played very, very well. Mm. Uh, It starts with Awake on Foreign Shores. This 
this is just really unnerving, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, it really get. As I've written here, we've just discussed this at at length, but you really need to get in the mood for this. <laughs> um, it's slightly discordant. And the production really emphasises the low notes, which I'm not sure where they're coming from in the room, but they're definitely Yeah, there. you know, I, I had the note that it's like a jagged ghost ship in the fog at night. It's got that kind of foghorn deep mm. chasm, but it's got a ragged edge, almost like the you can hear the rust on the saxophone yeah. if it has it. Um, it. It reminded me a bit of... Um, you know the guy Shane Carruth? Mm-hmm. It does, uh, he did the film Upstream yeah. Colour. So he, Primer. He, he, yeah, Primer. So he composed a lot of his own music, and the music in Upstream Colour is a much sweeter version of some of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is like a nasty, punky, guttural version of some of that, um, but, you know, similarly effective. This tune's short, full of harsh, droney stuff. It's got hints of zoo in the tones that are there, that ragged, rusty saxophone thing. That's, that's all there. Then... One of the standout moments in this right away is Judges, Mm -hmm. the second tune, effectively a form of the title tune, I guess. Um, this is one where he really needed that uh, dog collar microphone that we're talking about. Makes a lot of use of that, and also makes a lot of use of circular breathing. Absolutely, you can hear it. Yep, you can literally hear it. So, and and what you can also not hear are gaps. And the mm-hmm. the way this song flows, the way it sounds, almost like an arpeggiator. It's got this cascade to it, like a like a rolled off filter on a bass arm. Mm-hmm. Um, that's only possible because of that circular breathing that enables the line to be seamless. So he's effectively breathing out as he's breathing in. Mm-hmm. By the way, we've said this a few times and not really um, parsed it. So circular breathing is where you're exhaling into your instrument and inhaling at the same time. Sounds fucking mental I know I've tried it no I can't do it (laughs) but it is absolutely feasible and you can watch a number of YouTube tutorials if you want to give it a shot in your own house but it will stop you hyperventilating in certain situations if nothing else and it takes practice and it takes you know working at it to maintain it but yeah it's it's key to this Um, and it gives it as I said it's got a a sort of sequenced synthesised quality yeah It feels really danceable almost, you yeah, know, it's got it a thumping beat. Yeah, it's, it's, and the darkness to it, the fact that the top end is rounded off, mm-hmm. gives it that really deep house, that kind of like almost druggy quality yeah. to it. It must be the dog collar mic, but it sounds like it has vocals as well. He's singing yeah. into the funnel. Which is just brilliant, isn't yeah. it? It's just a really, it's, the way it ebbs and flows and it kind of swells and recedes, it's just, it's a really well composed piece of work for sure. Yeah. Um, the third track, Stars in His Head, uh, has a very, very constellation feel to it. It's a remix. Yeah, it's a re- this version on the album is a yeah, remix. I couldn't find the original anywhere. No. The higher kind of jostling tones in this to me were very reminiscent of Do Make Say Think or Silver Mount Zion. Mm-hmm. And there's a there's a point in the song where suddenly this kind of low percussion comes in, which I'm guessing must be keys through maybe a contact mic or something like that. Mm-hmm. 
And this stampede of these low notes mm-hmm. or these these low sounds is really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I guess for me it's um, it's the same sort of pulsing, almost looped feel of the last song, quite hypnotic. But it's just it becomes like way more frantic and wild, especially around about three minutes forty. Mm-hmm. Um, I've written here those layers of reverb that kind of swirl around when it when it comes from when it starts to come down from the big crescendo. Um, but that won't be that's not reverb. That's just different microphones in different places. Well, it, it's reverberation, yeah, you know, literally. Like, yeah, but it, yeah. it's probably it's it's unlikely it's maybe been a maybe a touch been added mm. but probably not a lot it could be a bit of production but it could also be that the mic is changing so that you know the emphasis in the mix is going from let's say mic number four to mic number 18 mm. and that gives you that transition into a bigger reverb as you literally change signal yeah. to a different microphone there's um there's there's some sounds on it that sound like guitars they've got that kind of dirty stringy feel almost but they're, they're not no, they're not they're not even in the room yeah um all the days I've missed you, the fourth track in it. Strange, actually. It's a bit. It's a bit of a. It's quite subdued. It's subdued and it's a it's a little bit incongruous compared to some of the other stuff. You know, it's very tonal. It's very warm. It's kind of yearning and it had a homecoming quality. I mean, I guess that's maybe suggested by the title, All the Days I've Missed You. That reminded me a little bit of a, yeah, like like a homecoming scene from something like Saving Private Ryan. Mm-hmm. Or something. There's, there's, mm-hmm. that, there's, a, there's a heartache to it, but like a kind of upbeat, yeah. sort of optimistic heartache to it. It's also mm-hmm. very short, mm-hmm. a very short song. It's like an interlude. I think you need it after the, the, the Frenzy, the first two, mm-hmm. the first two proper songs. Yep. It's, got like a, it's got like a low drone rumble going through it as well. Which is interesting I don't know where that would be coming from Tom Hanks? Yeah, could be (laughs) (laughs) Matt Damon actually Probably Matt Damon Um, Yeah, track five From no part of me could I summon a voice Seems ironic. (laughs) (laughs) Frenzied and erratic, uh, like the sudden startled flight of metallic pigeons. See, I I wrote, um, this must be sort of ironic because it sounds like an alien voice, a chorus of alien voices crying out at once, perhaps in panic or even in fear. The way the sax or the reeds are lower in the mix and just swimming in reverb makes me feel really uneasy. It's really chaotic sounding, and not not in the way that a metal song is chaotic. It actually sounds like there are people are fleeing from a horror. See, well, I guess beauty's in the eye of the beholder, but um, and it's this is a very subjective thing. But in my head, on the robot planet, a little robot kid ran into the middle of the robot town square, and a bunch of robot pigeons flew <laughs> up into the air to get away from the kid. And that's that's what I heard. I didn't hear anything sinister, but I heard frenzied. But I didn't hear the sinister part of it. Interesting. Mm. Um, track six. There were those who stayed in the city. What was it? Where did it go? A Dream of Water. This is a really significant song for this album. It's a bit of a centerpiece for it, even though it's not directly in the in the middle. Uh, and that's thanks, to, I think, to also the inclusion of Laurie Anderson, uh, who does a lot of spoken word over it. 
the spoken word aspect, the human voice finally arriving gives it a focus. It, it switches on a part of your brain. And that, that this is just unavoidable in any context. You know, hearing mm-hmm. a human voice just activates a different part of you. Um, it makes the whole process a bit less abstract. Um, I will say my take on it I think something about our delivery is a little bit robotic and whether or not that's intentional it doesn't massively connect to me emotionally there were those who lived in the crawl space there were people lighting candles there were people going crazy there were those who walked the beach but war is that I get the effect that's that, that they've gone for and they've, they've achieved it but I don't know, these, these these kind of songs, spoken word songs, especially coming amidst something that's so far been very immersive, can be a little bit hit and miss. And mm. whilst this is obviously a very significant tune on this record, mm. it's definitely not one of my favourites. I noted that as well. It, it felt as though to me as if her voice had been manipulated and sped up. Her words are almost exactly in time mm-hmm. with, the, with the sax that's been played in the background. And it feels artificial. But I also think to myself, oh, she wouldn't have said it so slower. <laughs> well, unlikely she would have said it slower. But it feels as though that it's been manipulated in some way to make to give it that that weird, almost inhuman feel, mm, like yeah. like it's coming from a computer almost. Yeah, it does have a. There's a strange quality to it, which, by the way, is credit to her. If that's a live performance and she's gone for something. Mm. Uh, you know, she's gone for that uncanny valley effect. Mm-hmm. She's achieved it, and that, that must actually be quite hard to do. Um, as we said, though, the, the vocals were one of the few things that were overdubbed. The, the, them and the French horn. So mm-hmm. I have no idea if there was much in the way of production done to those. Uh, home seventh track. odd, bit lethargic. I felt like this could almost appear in a Tom York album. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it, I mean, it's fine. I, I think it has, uh, I don't know, it's almost got, I would say ethnic. It sounds like it's based on some form of tribal music from mm. somewhere. Mm. I can't quite work out if it's Tibet or somewhere in the African continent or an Inuit culture or something. I, I can't work that stuff out. It does have a quality to it that's very non-Western. Yeah, definitely, um, definitely. There's also that thumping sound, which reminds me of a suitcase being closed or people upstairs like bouncing about on the on the ceiling. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like a found recording almost, you know, it sounds, it sounds like almost like record. a field recording, you know. Um, and I think that's pretty clever. They probably just got somebody to come into the studio and slap them on the ass. Yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> um, what you got in that trunk, son? That's, that's the, yeah, that's the sound of <laughs> tight Stetson buns. <laughs> yeah. Um, like 1% body It's also fat. got a high-pitched vocal on it, which is which is pretty pretty cool, which is, he's obviously doing live at, at the time. Mm. Lord, I just can't keep from crying sometimes. And it's this a traditional one, blues song, is it? Mm-hmm. Right. The vocals, I, I think the the, the delivery is decent, but I think other than the fact that it, it it achieves some things with mood, it doesn't achieve a lot in terms of like emotional resonance for me. Mm. I thought it was interesting intellectually. I didn't find it particularly moving.
when I was listening to the song, I was doing the research on the album, and I think because when I realised that it was a traditional song, I went back and listened to the original, and it was like a, it was like old blues, right? And the vocal is totally nailed on for that man. I, I think the vocal is pretty stunning, and I like the way the sax and whatever the bass, the bass sound of the sax as well, just kind of ache away in the background, mm. whilst there's that weird shuffling sound. Uh, it feels like he's shuffling his feet while he's playing and, and doing the circular breathing thing at the same time. Um, I feel like I'm listening to this in the back room of a, of a dingy bar in New Orleans on, on, on the swamp. You know, it's like the end of the night and this this woman is like longing for her sweetheart who's just not there anymore and it's a really drunk saxophone player trying to try to keep up. <laughs> uh, clothed in the skin of the dead. There we go. Um, Feels more upbeat, oddly It'd be hard not to be more upbeat in the title yeah. uh, Another fluttering flock of brass birds um, Yeah, I got that yeah. mm-hmm. Engrossing in a textural way mm-hmm. Effective, if not hugely compelling There's uh, percussive sounds that you're doing That are actually slightly different on each channel Which makes me wonder how he's done that It's almost like the increase in time with the music It's, it's really cool Intellectually, I appreciated it mm-hmm. But yeah, it didn't really grab me either all the colours bleached to white, the 10th track. Very short, quite soft. It's got a kind of choral, indulgent vocal, mm. vocal harmonies and stuff. That's a little palate cleanser almost. Mm-hmm. And then you get Red Horse Judges 2 Red Horse Judges 2 Is a, a big track in this I mm-hmm. think It's another one that nods to Zoo And maybe mo- even more so than before And almost metallic in its structure yeah. When Corey was talking about riffs I can see it mm. in this See I think the, the kind of fluttering bird stuff Doesn't qualify as a riff to me That's more textural um, Even if the grain is quite big um, But this I can totally see that analogy Amazing percussion effects Absolutely um, absolutely. Given the context that this is a live performance That that part of it is stunning Um, And the brutal raspy sax wails that start to arrive Mm -hmm. Are hugely effective and again have a metallic Noise rocky quality to them Yeah absolutely When when he starts letting those notes Those high notes go at 1.30 It's just something else This is a real real achievement this song It also has a real rhythm to it because of the percussion It actually almost feels like it could be a dance song You could easily remix this I reckon Yeah probably yeah you're right I mean I think before we get to the end I think tracks like that And tracks like The First Judges And for some people A Dream of Water Maybe not for me They set a pretty high bar mm-hmm. You know And I don't think it always manages to, to stay with that uh, But that is a real standout moment um, Track 12 The Righteous Wrath of an Honourable Man <laughs> Thank you. 
mean, it's it's more of that fluttering brasserie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure the album needs more of that mm-hmm. at that point, but perhaps it's a motif that he wanted to return to. Maybe it is a specific deliberate thing. It's maybe something that would make more sense if I was with this album for a lot longer. But as somebody that's now listened to, to it through quite a few times, I'm, I think any two of those three tracks that do similar things would have worked. So do you know that the, the, the three volumes are actually, actually a trilogy of records that have a narrative throughline? No, I, I don't know what the, the narrative is. Um, so in 2008, the, the first one, uh, had it was like the story of people who've been living at sea for generations. And the second one is these people finally arriving on land, so that fluttering birds and all that, I guess that's them kind of realising what that is. And then the third one is about war, basically. Yeah. All right, okay. Well, I guess the birds do serve a purpose then. Yeah. Congratulations. Uh, this one, it was more, sounded, felt more playful to me. It's not as dark as the other songs. And that fluttering sound, there's some slight bends on some of the notes, so just very occasionally, which for me, just bring a little bit of unease into the playfulness. And there's still a wee bit of uncertainty around what's actually happening. But then it's just pushed away as the fluttering kind of keeps bringing in more light. And I think, yeah. It's interesting actually, see you haven't said that Let's just look at the uh, titles here Awake on Foreign Shores Judges, okay don't know about that Stars in His Head, All the Days I've Missed You From No Part of Me Could I Summon a Voice I guess they don't massively tie in But then as you go on, A Dream of Water Makes sense, mm-hmm. Home Makes sense, Lord I Just Can't Keep From Crying Sometimes I Suppose, Clothed in the Skin of the Dead I guess makes a macabre sense All the colours bleached to white Red horse The righteous wrath of an honourable man uh, And then into fear of the unknown And the blazing sun It it has a pioneer mm-hmm. quality You know Somewhere between the witch And Vikings yeah. And what was that settlement Where they found the names scratched into the trees Which has completely escaped me right I now I don't You, you know what I mean The kind of Newfoundland oh, yeah. uh-huh. Settlements that mm-hmm. went missing Um yeah, I suppose. I can see that. Mm-hmm. Fear of the Unknown and the Blazing Sun. All the wires. It was the wires that were the wires for empathy that we loved beyond all the others. The, the spoken word in this one, I think, it works better for me this time yeah. around. Um, has a terrific abstract undulating groove that goes through it it's 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 a really really good touch another highlight of the album um and the vocal in this the the kind of more melodic vocal overlay has a bit of a dark pg harvey mm-hmm. down in a hole kind of quality yeah can't really add much more to that um, I like how the, the beat kind of forms like you say that undulating sort of feeling mm. that's really cool uh, and then finishing with In Love and Injustice uh, slow drawn out highly ambient finale uh, very absorbing and almost primitive and if you will something like a noise act suspended in amniotic fluid yeah it, it, it's all encased in a sort of soft weird bubble mm. that, that takes the sharp edges off it it's a little bit disturbing a little bit eerie in, in that way unusual ending it feels like an epilogue you know it feels like the end of the film mm. um, when the characters yeah. have kind of returned to some kind of normality 
as if the protagonist has now tried to relax in a new way of life, which I guess maybe makes sense with the theme of the album. I suppose. We can probably project anything we want on. Yeah, it. probably. Um, <laughs> so, Corey, thank you. That was a, an experience that I... I'm not sure if I will repeat again. I, well, I can, I, can, I can honestly say I'll probably spend a fair bit of time with Colin Stetson. I'm really impressed with his stuff overall. Uh, I, I really enjoyed that record. I uh, particularly enjoyed uh, Never Were The Way She Was, the, the album with his wife, Sarah Neufeld. I would recommend folks go and check that out. The inclusion of strings on it gives it just something... Well, obviously gives it just a whole other layer of intrigue. Um... But no, I, I thought that was really, really interesting. I don't know if we are... Well, I, in fact, no, I'll, I'll go further than that. We are not qualified to decide whether or not this mm-hmm. is Stetson's unsung classic. He is potentially unsung. He's fairly ubiquitous in alternative circles, as we've kind of established. Yep. Um, he's a cool name to have in your album. But I don't think there's many households who will recognise his name or his sound. So, Corey, we'll probably just have to take your word for it. I'm really impressed with him. And therefore, I'll vote it in on the basis that he's class and you've said this is the one and I'm in no position to disagree. Well, yeah, I'm the same as Chris. I, I can't speak to it in terms of if it's his unsung classic or not. Is he an unsung artist? I don't know. <laughs> I mean... Yeah, come on. It's obscure enough that it he has to be. He's, he's getting a lot of work, but he's getting a lot of movies, but I, I don't think he'll get a lot of recognition. It's, it's too esoteric. Yeah, fair. That's fair. Well, I'm glad we did that. That was fun. It's a it's a weight off. It is a weight off. It's a weight off my uh, conscience as well, because mm-hmm. Corey's been such a such an ardent a, supporter. Yeah, of the such pod. an ardent supporter. Was a very giving chap. He even got one of our t-shirts. He's got a lovely yellow Larue t-shirt, which is just spectacular stuff. Now never speak to us again. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, we have a nexus. A complicated series of connections between different things. We have a nexus. Nexus this week is from Colin Stetson to Ansel Adams, uh, as selected by Greg Love. Uh, now, Ansel Adams, I think we were all a bit clueless as to who that was, and then somebody barked out that it was a photographer, yep. artist, who's done music, mm. seems a bit of a um, polymath. A very influential photographer. Um, Brilliant photographer. Mm, yeah. so, some of the, the North American stuff, uh, well, it's mainly North American stuff mm. he does, um, in nature photography, big environmentalist. Very some of it's so beautiful, like mm. really striking. Um, yeah. yeah, so uh, we'll go from Colin Stetson to Ansel Adams and uh, mine's is very short so Colin Stetson went to the University of Michigan and it's got a lot of former alumni one of the most famous of which is the 38th President of the United States Gerald Ford um, Ansel Adams actually did a lot of photography work when Gerald Ford was a president in office uh, of him and the first wife oh. uh, and he was around so much in fact that Jimmy Carter would actually had basically hired him in 1980 to do the first ever presidential portrait, which was a photograph and not a painting. Wow. Which is pretty cool. There you go. I have just thought of a nexus in my head as well then. Yeah, so that's how you get to Ansel Adams really quickly, apparently. <laughs> so I'm going to improv a nexus here. Okay. Gerald Ford, mm-hmm. President of the USA. Mm-hmm. Franklin Roosevelt, President of the USA. Mm-hmm. Roosevelt 
once went out into Yosemite National Park with a guy called, I think it's John Muir. Mm -hmm. John Muir's from Dunbar, right? But he moved to the United States when he was quite young. He was about 11 years old. John Muir was one of the main advocates to federalise protection of American national parks, including Yosemite. Um, Hugely celebrated for the things he managed to achieve in terms of preservation of species and land and all these kind of things, okay? So John Muir took Franklin Roosevelt out to Yosemite National Park and Ansel Adams' ashes are scattered in Yosemite National Park nice. from the half mound or whatever it is that, that was photographed in his famous photo called... Oh, it's not obelisk, it's something like that. Um, I can't remember. Somebody's screaming it at their podcast or device right now. But anyway, there you go. I, I was improving that one. Give me a break. Um, okay, so Colin Stetson did the stirring soundtrack quite recently to a series, a mini-series by Disney called Among the Stars. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a docudrama about NASA and an older astronaut uh, embarking on, you know, one I think one final space mission and all the preparation around it and stuff, so maybe pretty cool. Um, NASA sent the Voyager spacecraft off into the unknown in nineteen seventy seven, both of them, Voyager one and two. Each spacecraft had a golden record on it mm-hmm. um, containing an array of things relating to human uh, civilization, ideally for another life form to discover and be like, whoa, whatever. Uh, those records included data, images, music, prose and more Carefully selected and curated by a committee uh, of people chaired by Carl Sagan By the way, Voyager 1 is currently almost 14.5 billion miles from Earth Way out in lonely interstellar space, interstellar space yeah. It passed Pluto mm. in 1990 <laughs> 32 fucking years ago it passed, passed Pluto yeah. Imagine how fucking lonely that wee fucking satellite is with its wee golden record. How, mm. Imagine how cold it is. Mm. I mean, it sort of makes you want to listen to Colin Stetson <laughs> when you think about that, yeah, doesn't it? Does, it? Yeah. Anyway, one of the images on that golden disc is the Tetons and the Snake River, also known as Snake River and the Grand Tetons, and is a very famous uh, image by photographer and environmentalist Ansel Adams. Wow. See, so 3NXI for the price of two. I actually had another one, but it was a bit too morbid. Ah. Yeah. Well, we don't need any more morbid in this. (laughs) Yeah, it's uh, been pretty morbid already. (laughs) I think the music was starting to get to me. Okay, that was that was good. That was was pretty heavy though. So pretty heavy. We should probably do something a bit lighter next week. Let's do something really light. And we've been talking about this, and we are going to do back thanks to popular demand another cover mount mixtape. We are. We sure are. I'm excited to see what it is. Went down a storm last Mm -hmm, time. mm -hmm. People loved it. So Hopefully we get something just exciting this time <laughs> We have a big old bag of, I don't know, just like random compilations that we've gathered yeah. uh, And that people keep foolishly adding to to make <laughs> things worse, okay So a bit like we would do with the Nexus, let me rummage about that's a, that's a big old bag of CDs, man And we shall be reviewing, oh, it's a bit stinky The uncut June 2006 playlist uh, to give you some highlights, Hot Chip, The Water Boys, 
what? <laughs> Jarvis Cocker and Kid Loco. What the fuck is that? Uh, Fiona Apple. The dirty, pretty things. Give me strength. Uh, okay, well, oh, Daniel Johnson. That's all right. Okay, let's see how we got on with this. We'll be back doing that next week. I have a feeling there will be some naughty words. Yes, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for listening. Uh, thanks again, Corey. Uh, check out Colin Stetson. Really, really interesting. And uh, check out some of the films that he's been involved in, especially Hereditary, if you haven't. Because what the fuck is wrong with you? Yes. Thanks, folks. Farewell. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.